Welcome to the At The Coalface podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. This podcast is all about what it's really like in the trenches of digital and e-commerce. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the pod. I've got a fantastic guest up for you today. I've got Nisarg Shah, who's the co-founder and CEO of Affable AI today with me. Welcome. Welcome, Nisarg, to the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, Jason, for having me. I'm super excited to be on the pod. I've been a listener. I've checked out a lot of your pods around e-commerce tech, very interested of the latest development in the space. And very excited to be here today. It's awesome to have you with me today. And before we we get into your technology, what you're working on, how you got to be there, look, you have got a very varied background, but it's definitely, you've got these very clear entrepreneurial tendencies, cohort member and entrepreneurs first. You were a founder of Visual Live, tech analyst at Goldman Sachs prior to that, Technion Explore program in Israel. So not only do you have some global experience in multiple areas, multiple regions around the world, you've lived in Singapore, you now live in San Francisco, you've been in Israel and India, and just you've got this massively varied background, but it definitely feels like your bent is a combination of business, tech, entrepreneurship, and really customer experience. And that feels like where your background sits. Would that be reasonably accurate? That is true. I studied engineering in college and have been a major fan of how software works and how it simplifies and a lot of the processes. I got a chance to visit Israel through my university because we were working on one of our own startup ideas and the DOM and uh, we were selected from uh, the government to visit the startup nation in Israel, and we can talk about it. But the experiences I had there was amazing. It was eye-opening, the kind of technology working there. Then after working at Goldman Sachs, I was managing a lot of the automation using software. And at the same time, I was working on a few projects that I believed could streamline a lot of processes in different domains. One was with e-commerce, furniture buying, using augmented reality. Another was a learning app, social network. But I think all of that culminated in me joining Entrepreneur First in Singapore as a founder who had this vision of building something for what the world would look like in next 10 years. And that's where I met my co-founder, Swayam, whom I started after in Singapore, the influencer management platform that you're currently working on. And you've been working on this. This is not just recent. I mean, you've been working on this for nearly five years now, and you obviously saw a gap in the market. There are other influencer marketing platforms out in the wild. It's a reasonably competitive space with the rise of the creator economy, the rise of the influencer. That's become a very competitive space, not only for the influencers and creators themselves, but all the tooling and the infrastructure that creators need in their life to make their life easier and to also make their services effectively more marketable and easier to connect buyers and sellers. And so most of these platforms, they function as almost like a marketplace, an app-based marketplace where they connect the buyers and the sellers, or they connect the brands and the influencers together and facilitate Mm -hmm. the process of them engaging and getting the creative shared with each other, et cetera. But you've been working on this for a long time. This is not your, A, it's not your first tech rodeo, and it's not like you came up with this six months ago. So what were you just scratching an itch or what specifically about the influencer and creator space piqued your interest that you went, hey, I think we can do something really cool here. If you take us back to 2017, this was the rise of 
influence and marketing the way we see it today there was no not so much of a social commerce there was not so much of the whole creator economy as as it has played out and we had a hypothesis that as social media continues to evolve people will buy more on instagram and tiktok and youtube than they buy by searching on amazon if this were to become true we knew that brands would need a way to broadcast information about their products and visibility about their products to users on social media and back in 2017 again you spot on when you said that a lot of the solutions that even exist today are either marketplaces or these are managed agency providers or managed marketplaces what that means is for brands like h&m and other fashion or beauty cosmetics brands they have to still do a lot of manual work either themselves or outsource this manual work to another entity but the process was still super manual it was full of guesswork and it was very time consuming brands did not know who is the right influencer if their followers are real or not if the influencer has spoken about a competitor how effective the influencer is what is the roi on the program they had no clue and when i was in singapore and we were talking to a lot of these brands they basically told us they have these million dollar budgets which they were handing off to an agency without any visibility on how these agencies are shortlisting influencers or how effective these influencers are so that's the gap we saw but more than the gap that's the opportunity we saw in the market where we could build something uh, in a growing industry in a growing domain yeah look i this makes complete sense to me and it, i think that you've been proven like you've been this sort of use case that you saw this overarching use case that you saw way back then has borne itself out to be absolutely true and when we look at your platform now just to be transparent to the audience i've never implemented affable i've never used affable i've never gauged influencers so i have to go on what we've discussed previously and also what you show on your website and some of the use cases you talk about but your platform really is a full or at least your intent for it is to be a full spectrum engagement analysis workflow tool with to, to engage with influencers and manage all of the workflows between the brand and the influencer. So all the way from the point of identifying and finding the right influencers for your specific brand and or campaign, being able to analyze those influencers, verify their audience demographics and authenticity, being able to manage the campaign workflow end to end. So creating the brief and being able to share creative and revise, et cetera. Be able to track the influencers' stories and uh, when they're actually posting on your behalf and so that you can actually see what the performance of that creative or that campaign ends up being. And then being able to, over the long, medium to long term, manage campaign level ORI. So being able to track the engagement, the reach, et cetera. And then going one step further, being able to also track competitor campaigns, trends. And one of the other things that you guys talk about pretty extensively is being able to be engaged with brand safe influencers. So obviously if you are a, a baby brand and you're selling to parents of babies, for example, then obviously you have to be pretty cautious about the types of influencers that you engage with. And there's other verticals, there's other categories that are probably more sensitive to the background of the influencer and the type of content that they post, et cetera, to ensure that it aligns really tightly with the brand ethos, their ethics, et cetera. It feels like you've tried to think of almost everything and the kitchen sink when it comes to right from the point of identifying the influencers that you should be working with all the way through executing a campaign and beyond. 
It's amazing how well you've described it, Jason. And like for everyone listening, this is probably the best explanation I've heard from someone who's never looked at the platform because you pretty much described everything we do in terms of being able, being a completely end-to-end -end influencer management platform. Being an influencer management platform and you know, especially me and my co-founder, where we do not come from the industry, we don't come from a marketing world or from the influencer creator economy world. We relied a lot on our customers and potential customers. We asked them what their challenges are. We sat in their offices and looked at their workflow, what they do before finding influencers, what are they doing after a campaign? And we've taken all of those notes and with the goal of streamlining the entire influencer management process we've gone out and built continuously in a very fluid manner uh, the entire funnel of search management and measurement so we call it you know the three-step process of influencer marketing you want to first shortlist who is the most relevant influencer for you by the way not only based on what the influencer is talking about but also based on who their followers are so if you are a parenting brand looking to engage women in the US, you do not want to work with some beauty blogger where most of her followers are men in the US. So going one step ahead and shortlisting the right influencers and then having a CRM, pretty much like a Salesforce, where you short, you put in 500 influencers, you send them an email, you invite them to try out your products, you ship them the products and do all the logistics around the PR gifting process followed by measuring who's driving sales, who's driving reach, engagement, media value across your social networks. And doing that across all social channels is something that we strive to provide here. And that's what we've been able to achieve. We work with more than 100 different brands and agencies right now. Some of the biggest brands use the platform and we are now finding a great adoption with the e-commerce brands who are using it quite a lot for their affiliate process. Influencer marketing is evolving and with that, our platform also keeps evolving. Yeah, I can imagine it's a very fast moving space. So if you want to stay at the forefront of that, then you've got to constantly be evolving to keep up. Now, one of the biggest pain points I've seen brands struggling with when it comes to influencer management is payments, escrow services, negotiating fees, costs, et cetera, payments. All that stuff feels like it's messy in a way. And being able to have discovery across what a campaign should cost, maybe what a specific influencer should be charging as a reasonable fee for whatever engagement it is, whether it's a story, whether it's a full-blown post, whether it's a time-limited post that will ultimately be deleted. There's so many models to engage with these influencers, particularly when you've got multiple platforms at play and multiple media formats at play. And so do you guys help with, or does your technology help with trying to uh, establish a reasonable expectation with the brand of what they should be paying for the type of service or the type of campaign that they're looking to execute on based on the size of the influencer, based on the platforms that they're working across, based on where you want the, the campaigns to be deployed. And then do you facilitate payments, escrow services of payments? Do you act as the conduit to manage that? Or, is, or do you leave that piece of it for the influencer and the brand to execute independent of your platform? That's a great question. And that kind of goes into the whole nuance about what influencer marketing is. A lot of times brands, even brands who are actively working with influencers do not necessarily understand that every influencer is different. And depending on the services the brand is asking for, the rates or the expectation from the influencers might be different. What we have done as a facilitator of 
collaboration between brands and influencers is we have actually surveyed influencers. We've surveyed tens of thousands of influencers in different countries each and asked them for what they typically charge for the services. And you mentioned different kinds of services, a video, a post, a story, a limited time story, et cetera. We've asked these influencers on how much they charge for these services. And then we've created an estimated model that predicts what any influencer anywhere in the world might charge the brand, depending on the followers, the country, the industry, the engagement rates, their previous brand collaborations, the content they upload. Uh, we tell the brand as we provide them an estimate of what they might expect this influencers to charge them. Now, obviously there's a caveat here that when the brand actually reaches out to these influencers, depending on the scope of work, depending on how busy the influencer is, depending on how prominent the brand is, these rates may vary, but at least now brands have some benchmark that they can refer to um, and they're not as clueless as they were before. We believe that influencers should be duly paid for the kind of traction they're able to generate and for the kind of for the kind of exposure that these influencers are able to bring to the brands. And I think it's improving. Five years ago, brands just wanted to give a product to the influencers and not pay. But what we are seeing is a massive shift in the industry and the sentiment from the brand side where they do realize that if someone is giving them 100,000 eyeballs on their product, then they do deserve to be compensated. Now, regarding the second question on how Affable facilitates these payments, we do not currently act as an escrow as such because we believe that the brands should completely own the relationship with the influencers and it's the brands, it's on the brands that they should provide a seamless experience of collaboration with the influencer. However, we provide various integrations through which brands can streamline the payout process. For example, if a brand wants to pay cross-border a fixed fee or an affiliate fee, 20% of every sales generated, et cetera, our system allows the brand to configure everything to make those payouts and send a report on a regular basis to the influencer. So the influencer also knows how much they can expect as a payout every week, every month, depending on their collaboration with the brand. I love it. You've created two things here that I think are sometimes overlooked, which is the fact that you've created this benchmark service, which I think is really critical because if you're a brand and you're looking at working, particularly if you're a small brand, you don't have a dedicated marketing or influencer management team. This is the first time maybe you've run an influencer campaign. You, you don't even know where to start in the negotiations. You almost are at the mercy of an influencer, even if they're a micro-influencer. And for the micro-influencer on the flip side, they might feel that they're at the mercy of the brand in some respects because they might be new to influencer marketing themselves. They don't know what they should be charging. They don't know what's realistic and reasonable for their size of audience and their average engagement rates, et cetera. So I think you're providing an essential, but you're creating an essential service for not just the demand side, but the fulfillment side as well. And so I, I think that you're bridging the gap. You're bridging an essential gap between the influencer and the brand or the individual merchant. And I think that's a really essential pipe that you're creating there. And you're creating a level of what I would call transparency that is hard to get in, in you can Google it, but the reality is usually if you look at Business Insider or whatever, they pick out a one-off influencer that is category specific and 
usually they don't talk about micro influencers very much. They talk about the major name brand halo influencers. And obviously that's not necessarily relevant to a smaller medium sized business who can never afford Kim Kardashian level influencer, but they might be able to afford a smaller micro influencer. And so I think you're providing an essential service there to help everybody have a little bit more transparency about what is a reasonable expectation about what each side is bringing to the table. So I think that's really important. And I think when we're talking about payments, look, I think there's probably some kind of opportunity there. And I'm sure you're thinking about this already for a type mm -hmm. of escrow service for a deposit versus delivery and then pay on for per performance, which you're already tracking and measuring anyway. So it's transparent to both sides. So I think and I'm guessing it's probably on your roadmap somewhere yeah. at some stage to provide some sort of service around that and maybe even clip, clipping the ticket on payments. But to your point, I think you're right. I think everybody has a different way of wanting to manage those payments, wanting to be presented with an invoice and different payment methods that they may want to use. So it is a little bit messy, but I definitely see an opportunity there for you to take a little bit more of an ownership stake because you're already creating the data. You're already tracking the data. You're already doing the analytics. You're doing actually even the predictive analytics. So you're already providing a whole lot of management functionality around this and ROI data around this. So it feels like a natural fit for as a next step. No, for sure. And that's some great feedback. We've received this requirement at times from clients. The reason why we haven't dabbled into that yet, say yet with an emphasis is we've tried to stay true to our nature of being a pure tech company so far. We do not facilitate or manage campaigns for our clients as a service. We, we're trying to build as much software as we can to help clients streamline that process. And there is still uh, the component of escrow that we could build out more on an automated basis that gets unlocked. So there's definitely some opportunity there and uh, this is some amazing feedback. And we've received this from clients in the past who want to streamline the payments more and more, uh, who want to sign contracts with influencers and then put some amount in escrow and then based on the performance, release those funds. So not only that, but I think there's just like a lot more opportunity with commerce uh, and how influencers can be paid a percentage of every sale they drive, because then it, the incentives are totally aligned between the brand and the influencer. The brands typically hesitate to pay upfront to micro influencers. Brands want to pay uh, based on conversions and based on performances, but micro influencers uh, do not know or cannot guarantee what kind of performance they can drive. That's like the missing gap. And one of the new initiatives that we are working on is how do we bridge that gap? How can we enable brands to find nano or micro influencers and do a complete streamline of the product gifting and affiliate process while the influencers can earn based on every conversion they drive and then have some kind of an automated payout that has been pre-agreed between the brand and the micro influencers. But just going back to one of the points, Micro-influencers and nano-influencers open up the a big opportunity for brands that don't have budgets for celebrities to go out and do word-of-mouth marketing like it was never possible before. Imagine having an army of 50 micro-influencers who all start talking about your product on a Black Friday. Compare that versus how much you would have to pay a Kim Kardashian to upload one story that stays on her feed for let's say 12 hours only. The difference in that cost is massive and working with micro-influencers opens up a completely new avenue to go to market for a lot of the brands that are setting up new shows or that are like homeowners selling products from their own house. It feels like this is, and this is a natural segue into a couple more questions I have based on what you've just said. It feels like this is a legitimate, honest, scalable, 
reasonable alternative to the exploding inflation across the walled gardens of Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon in terms of paid and performance advertising and marketing, it feels like this is now becoming so, I guess, streamlined and so scalable from your perspective and using platforms like yours that it now presents in in many cases, not all, because not everything is easy to be managed by influencers. And there are certain verticals that don't necessarily have a tremendous amount of influencers in them, but I'm thinking mainly of B2B. And there's some other areas where it may be a little more difficult Mm -hmm. to find appropriate influencers, but for your mainline categories, your mainline retail products and categories, and your mainline retailers and brands, and even manufacturing brands that have a D2C play, it feels like this is now becoming and very rapidly evolving into a a seriously legitimate competitor for ad spend dollars versus the major players. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. We've seen a massive shift in ad budgets at not only our clients, but in specifically in the industry, moving from the walled gardens, as you correctly said, uh, Facebook and Google ads and Amazon, and especially after the change on the whole cookie tracing and the restrictions that Apple's iOS updates have put in, a lot more marketers especially the growth marketing folks at fast growing e-commerce companies are who can actually measure and attribute performance back to influencers are being very data driven about their spends. They compare their ROAS on their Facebook budget spends, as well as the kind of returns they're getting on influencers. And a lot of budget is shifting towards influencers. Marketers are being very creative to find ways around these walled gardens and still generate more, if not as much ROI that they used to get when acquisition, the customer acquisition cost used to be much lower on Facebook or on through Google ads. And with those rising costs and with enterprises pumping a lot more budgets on these ads, the innovative and creative marketers are finding ways to push their budgets on influencers. You must have seen a lot more influencer content going out on TikTok just because of the massive reach that TikTok is able to generate. I still feel, and this is my opinion, that TikTokers are underpaid, but the kind of reach and the kind of conversions that TikTok is able to generate for the brands, there is a lot more potential for marketers to work with these influencers and scale their ROI across these social channels through influencer marketing. One of the strategies that works very well for the brands that we work with is having a cross-channel approach and working with influencers who can promote across multiple channels because this gives a higher share of voice for the brands. The followers are looking at the content across multiple channels and the influencer is able to experiment with short form, long form image, videos, reels while still talking about the brand. That's the opportunity that uh, marketers are harnessing. And we think that this is just the start of what the creator economy and the influencers can do for the brands going ahead. That that provides another natural on-ramp into the discussion about TikTok because you did raise the topic of TikTok. And to me, it feels like TikTok is taking over in the, the let's say, the recreational social media space. It's taking over from where kind of LinkedIn is at in the business social media space. We've got still astronomical, you know, organic reach on LinkedIn, although that is slowly changing and it's definitely reduced over the last couple of years, but it's still 
amazing. And then we look at TikTok and it's almost the analog of LinkedIn, but in the recreational social media world and the personal social media world. And it feels like the organic reach there. I've even noticed on the TikTok side that their organic reach has started to drop, but I don't necessarily think that's because TikTok has changed the way it it allows reach on their platform. Mm -hmm. I think it feels very much like it's just getting noisier as a platform, that it's grown so fast that it's actually hard now to get the organic reach that you used to on TikTok. Again, not because they're necessarily trying to kill organic reach like Meta has, because Meta has Mm -hmm. all but completely eliminated organic reach on their platforms because their platforms are now pay to play. But it feels less like TikTok has gone down that route yet. I have no doubt that they will, and it'll eventually become largely pay to play on TikTok too. But it feels like it's just become such a noisy platform because it's so popular. And so we don't see necessarily as many people popping on TikTok as they used to because there's so much competition on TikTok. But man, the organic opportunity there is still massive. It is indeed. And the early adopters of the platform who used to do musicals and dances and like comedies and interviews through random people on the street, the audiences that they have garnered is very sticky. So as long as a creator is consistent with their TikTok content, they continue to get the reach. And you are absolutely right where today, if someone wants to become a creator on TikTok, unless they have something which is potentially viral, it is very difficult to get organic reach just because of the competitive behavior of everyone else trying to be a TikToker. Uh, There's a famous survey that was done with kids in school asking them what they want to be when they grow old 20 years later and majority of the kids in the u.s said youtuber or tiktoker like a creator Uh, and the second after that was like an astronaut which is so funny because now these kids who have access to a mobile phone can go out and just keep creating tiktok content and a lot of them have million plus followers, which is very difficult to get on a YouTube or an Instagram. Just because of the competitive nature of the platform, the organic reach has gone down. I don't think that TikTok is killing the organic reach yet to promote more paid ad-based content. I think TikTok's approach still is that they want to be able to generate as much traffic on all of the content, but promote the ones that have a viral coefficient to it compared to Meta, where you have to pay to promote any post and get any eyeballs on it. So I think absolutely spot on that TikTok is getting super competitive, but with the caveat that a creative, potentially viral content is still able to find the eyeballs that it would have otherwise. And what that says to me is that if you want to get great reach on TikTok, you need to be working with some of those already established influencers on the platform to to increase your exposure, your brand's exposure, maybe even your own content's exposure through duets and all sorts of other things that influencers can do with your content and effectively repurpose your content as part of their content to expose your content to their audience. It feels like there's so many opportunities to leverage the listing stars on TikTok that it feels like that is going to become almost the de facto approach for brands to get reach on TikTok as opposed to necessarily trying to focus on building their own direct following in this hyper-competitive environment, it's to leverage the stars that were early to the game that did build a moat effectively on the platform. So it feels like you're very well positioned to take advantage of that. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the split of campaigns flowing through your platform in aggregate at very high level, helicopter view. Has that mix changed dramatically with the rise 
of TikTok, where maybe a couple of years ago, maybe it was primarily campaigns for Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Have you seen that split move dramatically from those platforms to TikTok? Because presumably, because your platform is managing which target platforms those campaigns are destined for and defined for at the campaign level, you must have seen that sort of market mm -hmm. share, mind share shift from those other platforms to TikTok in a dramatic way over the last couple of years. Definitely. I would add that there is a nuance of region to this. A lot of the regions, and you'd be surprised there are markets in Southeast Asia where Facebook is still big, like influencer campaigns on Facebook. Not, I'm not talking about the meta umbrella, but like Facebook is still huge, but you don't see that in a lot of other markets. But in general, typically like back in 2017, Instagram was a clear number one, followed by YouTube in terms of the amount of campaigns where brands were engaging influencers but today tiktok is definitely catching up still competing with youtube on the second and third position in a few markets it is the second most channel that is used behind closely behind instagram in terms of the number of influencers but i would say that the the pie is shrinking away from instagram where tiktok has caught up quite a bit youtube with its new youtube shorts approach is able to drive a lot of organic traffic for those videos and the creators of these videos. So YouTube is catching up as well. And Instagram seems to be losing ground in terms of the number of campaigns where influencers are engaged. And that's where they are pushing on reels now. So I think all social channels have agreed in a way where short form video is the way to go ahead. That seems to be generating a lot more eyeball maybe people's attention span is much lower than what it used to be before and uh, facebook recently announced that they're opening up reels api access to developers they want more of the ecosystem players to help generate uh, more reels as well as distribute these reels but in terms of number of campaigns tiktok is definitely catching up the pie uh, the percentage of the pie that tiktok used to have five years ago has significantly increased as more people started adopting TikTok. We're seeing that even from the, I guess, the retail side or the consumer side, we're seeing the rise of TikTok. And do you think that obviously we've heard rumbling from the United States government and the Indian government has banned TikTok in India. We see the rise of tensions between China, which is obviously where TikTok is Bay headquartered. We're seeing the rise of tensions between China and the rest of the world over Taiwan and many other things that are geopolitically behind the scenes. It feels almost like the only threat to TikTok at this stage is geopolitical risk. It feels <laughs> like from a pure social media platform perspective, from a demand side and a supply side, it feels like that they're an absolute juggernaut that almost cannot be stopped. But it feels like legislative and compliance risk and geopolitical risk are the big risks to TikTok at this stage. And would you agree with that sentiment? I definitely see where you're coming from. And with my limited understanding of geopolitics and knowing that TikTok and ByteDance are two separate, although it's the same entity, but they are two separate products. I'm not sure how they're structured, but if TikTok was able to distance itself from ByteDance and there were initial mumblings of how Microsoft and Walmart would have acquired TikTok's business to bring it in the US and how Oracle has some deal with TikTok to bring all the data of US users in the US market. I feel there are ways through which uh, TikTok may not 
be significantly impacted because of its partnerships with Oracle and you know, potential partnerships with Microsoft and Walmart. But that's my limited understanding. I do definitely agree to the fact that currently it's very difficult to stop how fast TikTok is growing. And if there was something to stop it, there would be some component of geopolitics that could come and interfere. And that might be a lucky trump card for Meta and the other social networks. Yeah, well, they're certainly pushing that trump card, aren't they? And I've heard Meta, Mark Zuckerberg has railed in somewhat of a self-serving fashion, obviously, against TikTok <laughs> and its geopolitical risk and its users' data risk and exposure to the Chinese government and the CCP. So look, I think it, obviously, again, it's pretty self-serving. Maybe there is some truth in the uh, truth in the pudding there, so, so to speak. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. But I do agree with you. I think the geopolitical risk to TikTok is the number one risk to their business as of today. And unless they're able to continue to assuage concerns of major nation states around the world, then those nation states run the risk or TikTok runs the risk of those nation states going down the path of India and simply outright banning the app in the country. And so that that would be, that's a pretty big risk. The Indian market is a massive, and that was a huge loss of users from the TikTok ecosystem when India banned it. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out over the next six to 12 months. Now, if we change gears for a moment here, how do you guys make your money? Do you make your money on the demand side, the supply side, both, how, you know, your SaaS platform? And so presumably you have some sort of a, a subscription model. You've got, mm -hmm. you've got a pricing page on your website, which sort of explains what you mm -hmm. get at each tier, but it's... So we're so we pure sad play at the moment. We make money by selling subscription to our software and provide that access to brands and sometimes agencies who use our platform to manage the entire influencer marketing program. We currently do not engage or charge influencers for any campaigns that they receive through our platform. Also, because we are not a marketplace, uh, we do not have influencers that we need to onboard onto the platform so for the brands to engage our revenue and our business model is currently tied to the services we provide to the brands and in the future as we enable payments and as we enable potentially escrow services etc there might be a component where there is a success-based fee there is a campaign budget-based variable fee that we might be able to charge if the brands are seeing that value coming from the platform but currently, typically brands would pay a fixed annual fee to use our services and run influencer marketing campaigns. And if you could give us some sort of, I, and I realize this is a potentially regional regionalized pricing. So depending on what country you're in and what currency, et cetera, I'm guessing the pricing could be a little bit different. But on your pricing page, there is no specific pricing you know, displayed there. But what would, you know, you've got SME, pro and enterprise, and obviously enterprise, I'm guessing is a negotiated price, which makes mm -hmm. sense. But to give the audience a bit of an indicative idea of how much they would expect to pay per month on a subscription basis for SME or pro, what kind of range of price are we looking at there in so, USD, say, for example? For sure. And there's a reason why we did not necessarily open up the pricing because a when we did that, we realized that a lot of the customers have very varied requirements that do not even fit into one of the tiers we provide. There are different customizations that they want to the tiers, but a lot of these brands are starting onto their influence programs where they're still unsure what accesses they might need, what features they might need. And a lot of brands, when they start with us, they eventually grow into different tiers on an average for an average customer, when someone comes in, the SME tier is somewhere around 8,000 a year. 
the pro tier is somewhere around 18,000 a year and the, the enterprises, as you said, negotiated based on the requirements, the number of seats, the number of channels, the kind of reporting that the client requires. But these are typically fixed annual fees. And then as the client grows, we grow with them. We are very a very big believer on helping the clients find value in the product. So we provide a lot of additional support and service and training and regular check-in with the clients. We recommend them influencers based on if you notice some influencer in their industry who's garnering a lot more traction or who's growing and was unnoticed before, some smaller key players who are up and coming where the clients could create some exclusive relationships with. So there's a lot of recommendation and services we provide on top of it that a lot of our clients find value on apart from just the accesses that they get to our software. Makes sense. And because you guys are not a marketplace, and so you're not effectively doing a match between influencers that have subscribed to your marketplace and brands that have subscribed to your marketplace. So because your service works a little bit differently in that it's your AI, it's your intelligence, it's your business intelligence, and it's your analytics across these platforms where you're going out and you're effectively scraping those platforms for influencer information, their follower count, their post count, their post frequency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, their engagement rates, et cetera. And you're bringing that effectively, that intelligence into the platform for the brands to help identify those influencers that might be a good fit for them. I'm guessing that you also automate the outreach process. And I'm guessing that 99% of the time that's via social DM on the target platforms and the influencers. So presumably you set up a bit of a template for that specific campaign, and then your platform actually connects via API to those platforms and to those target influencers that have been created within the platform for that particular campaign or brand. And then you send via your API connections on mass messages to those influencers on behalf of the brand and behalf of their brand account on those platforms to effectively engage with them and try to get them to click through to engage with the campaign. Is that from a technical process? Is that typically how? A couple of clarifications there. First, we have API integrations using public APIs with a lot of these channels where they are able to give us a high level information of quick available user accounts with a lot of followers. We don't scrape these channels, but use APIs as much as possible and then augment the data with our own insights, intelligence, analysis. Like for example, we use profile pictures, we use names, use machine learning on these images, text, hashtags, biography keywords to segment the influencers into the right buckets to identify the age, gender, location through which our uh, clients are able to find these influencers and reach out to them. But additionally, we do not, the outreach process is not through DMs, but it is through emails, social channels, and you know, reasonably so are very protective about mass messages you know, on an automated basis through DMs. And influencers are actually more responsive to professionally sent emails that are personalized to them that have thoughtful approach to it rather than dms they get dms from a lot of their fans they get spam messages across their social channels etc so when a brand reaches out to influencers we enable that communication through an email approach behind the scene and the data is accurate because we get this information directly using the apis from social media channels so the apis of those platforms do supply the email of those particular users to you yes as long as the influencers have made it publicly available and for those that have not we are not able to facilitate a conversation for a small subset of those influencers and then i guess in that situation then they would be able to reach out to them via dm instead 
That's right. But on a manual basis. No, it makes sense. Makes sense. Listen, this has been super enlightening. It's been super fun. It's been super interesting. You clearly know this industry inside and out after working in it for as long as you have since 2017. I super appreciate you sharing with us the inner workings, so to speak, the opening of the kimono of the industry. It's not often we get to speak to someone so knowledgeable about the influencer marketing space who's building technology specifically for that space. So it's been awesome spending time with you today. Now we're at the sort of AMA, ask me anything portion of the segment together. I turn the tables, I turn the microphone over to you. I let you ask me one question, any question, and I do my best to answer it. So AMA over to Nisarg Shah. And uh, look, it, I'm really looking forward to what you're gonna ask. And I'm really excited about what Affable is going to do next. Now, first of all, thanks a lot for your feedback. Those are some amazing questions that might be very helpful for the listeners. In terms of the question I have for you, how do you think the creator economy is evolving to enable influencer-led commerce? And what do you think is the future of influencer-led commerce? Very good question. I think there is still an absolute truckload of friction in social commerce today. And when we think about the vast majority of commerce that takes place on social today, it's redirect commerce, right? Mm -hmm. Brands will put up their catalog on something like Instagram, but if you want to buy it, it redirects you to the cart or to the product page on mm -hmm. that brand's website to execute the transaction. And that that is too much friction. It's still too much friction. And yes, they've come out with Instagram shops and Facebook shops and in certain regions around the world, but it is very limited in where you can actually do that as a brand and execute a shop on those platforms. So I still think that there is a tremendous amount of friction there for the buyer because not the until we get into a wattized experience where effectively we have social media platforms that are also marketplaces, for lack of a better term, where they can bring the concept of an aggregated cart like a marketplace. So at the moment, if I'm on Amazon and I want to have a cart with 10 items in it from 10 different merchants or half those items might be from Amazon Direct, half those might be from third-party merchants, but it's a single payment, it's a single aggregated cart, it's a seamless, consistent experience across Amazon. That is, to me, that is the single biggest thing that is lacking in social today. So until social commerce is as seamless as the Amazon experience, but working across multiple creators, multiple brands, multiple shops, and you can have an aggregated cart with a walletized, tokenized credit card, all of your shipment details, your delivery details, et cetera, stored in the platform as a customer. And you can execute those transactions like literally with zero friction, like one click checkout effectively, or one, one click add to an aggregated cart until it is that seamless. I think it is going to be difficult or it is going to continue to be very difficult for for brands mm -hmm. and influencers and creators to monetize their relationship in a share, rev share way, that is going mm -hmm. to continue to be difficult. Once all of that transaction takes place directly within social without ever having to leave those environments, then I think it is going to be much, much easier for creators to create natively in social, to engage with brands in social, to work with social, to generate sales directly in social that is transparent so that the revenue is very clear to the creator, it's very clear to the brand, it's very clear to the social platform, and everybody can clip the ticket along the way. Once that happens, once the friction is completely removed, 
I think the creator economy is going to explode like never before. Because at the moment, they really only have one way to monetize their following. There's multiple ways in terms of formats mm -hmm. of creative, but really the way that they monetize today is by engaging with brands on a campaign level basis and paying for the privilege. But I think there's many more ways to create micro payments as part of that engagement if the social platforms facilitate it. So I think we have to get there first and it's really up to the platforms to make that happen. That's my sense. Yeah, that's definitely, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I was thinking while you, you shared your thoughts on that and just to add my two cents on it, I think social networks have solved the discovery problem, but they have not yet solved the checkout problem, which is exactly what you encapsulated with the example of Amazon and how seamless it is to check out a cart and people are used to a certain way of online shopping and you can't really change user habits, especially for commerce. But what I'm really impressed about is how social networks are enabling discovery of new products through creators and through their ads and other forms of bringing it in front of the users. But you're absolutely spot on. I agree that unless social networks are able to streamline the checkout process, commerce will be very slow in terms of it. I'm excited on the whole YouTube Shopify partnership that was just announced two months, two weeks ago on creators being able to set up their own stores. Today, Ticketmaster announced its partnership with TikTok on how creators or artists can sell tickets to their shows through TikTok videos. So there's definitely that momentum on social networks that they want to enable discovery of stuff that people can buy on these networks. But uh, yeah, like as as long as checkout remains a hurdle, they will not see so much of a conversion. Couldn't agree more. Said, listen, that's a high note to finish on. I think the industry as a whole has a bright future ahead. I think there's still tremendous opportunity out there. I think we're in the early innings of this thing of the creator economy. Every brand, every platform, every technology vendor is still trying to figure it out. And that prevents presents massive opportunity for Affable moving forward as you continue to build out your product, as you continue to build out new features and functionality as these platforms evolve and provide services to the demand and the supply side. Essentially, you, you're doing a great thing. Thank you very much for coming on the pod today, Nisarg. And I wish you guys over at Affable all the best. And hopefully we'll be able to get you on in another, another year or so. And we'll be able to see just what's happened in the space in the intervening year. Thanks a lot, Jason, for having me. It was fun sharing my thoughts and learning on learning about your thoughts on the space. I will continue listening on the pod. Super exciting insights on the e-commerce and the tech space. So very excited to see how the social media world evolves and how your pod also evolves along with it. Thanks a lot for having me again. I love that conversation and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Are you a merchant or software vendor that is focused on e-commerce or omni-channel? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to see how we can help you scale your business.